just in case you guys think I'm slacking off now. But, okay, so uh, we're picking up where we left off last week. We finished off, we had a long talk about just the difference between an old covenant and new covenant ministry. And looking at just the, the different way that God's grace was administered in the Old Testament through these sacrifices and priests and temples versus now with just the simplicity of preaching and prayer and reading the word of God. And so in 3.12, he starts off, since then, we have such a hope, like this hope that comes through a new covenant ministry. We act with great boldness. That is, we're bold to proclaim this message, this ministry to you. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory that was being set aside. So remember, it mentioned previously how when Moses met with God and came down from the mountain, his face was shining. And it was so bright that he had to actually wear a veil over it so that the Israelites wouldn't... I don't know whether it was so bright they'd be blinded or they were just like, wow, this is crazy. But for some reason, it needed to be veiled so they couldn't look directly at it. And it was glorious, but it, even that glory was going to be put to side because the New Covenant glory is so much greater than that. Um, their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It's not lifted because it's only set aside in Christ. So he's saying, just as we have this picture that they didn't directly see God's glory in Moses' face because of the veil, it's almost like they don't see the glory of God in the Old Covenant scriptures. It's like there's a veil over that as well. So it's almost as like if you could imagine a Bible has like light shining out of it, but like someone's put a blanket over it or whatever. And it's like, well, I don't see any beauty in this book. I don't see any beauty in this message. So saying that that's what it was for the Jewish people in the days of Paul, that they had this veil that they couldn't really see the truth about Jesus in the Old Covenant ceremonies. They couldn't see very clearly how these sacrifices pointed to the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled it. Uh, the veil on the whole Bible is set aside in Christ. So it's only once you see Jesus and understand his ministry, then it's like, that's pulled away. It's like, oh, all this makes sense. The prophecies in Jeremiah about the new covenant that um, were around the passages we were looking at today. Uh, the visions even in Daniel. It all starts to make more sense in the face of Christ. Uh, today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So this is a spiritual veiling, right? It's, a, it's an understanding deep on the inside. But, verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And I think this is a true picture of not just the Jews in that day, but think of all unbelievers. There is um, a veil over their hearts that, even though they might hear the same preaching we do, or they can read the same Bible we do, um, they hear the same words, but they don't see the same beauty. They don't see the same glory. And the way to actually gain true spiritual understanding is by conversion, a turning to the Lord. Turning away from sin and repentance, turning towards God in faith. And so it's almost as interesting because people often want to, and I think this is human nature, we want to understand everything before we jump in, right? It's almost, or like you can think of it like when you're dating someone, it's like, I want to know everything important about them, have this all figured out, and then I'll decide to commit to marrying them. But it's almost like with God, it's the opposite. Like, you're not going to truly know God and understand and see the clear spirituality in Scripture until you've committed yourself to serve the Lord and to turn to Him and to follow Him. So it's almost like that initial act of faith, of surrender to God, is actually the way by which you come to gain spiritual sight to see and um, 
in 1 Corinthians, the first couple of chapters, Paul talks about this, how um, the spiritual man understands all things and the wisdom of the Greeks and uh, the wisdom of the Jews, they don't see it because you have to have spiritual discernment, discern spiritual things, which comes through a, the new birth, a turning from sin and a turning towards God. And so I just even think of, if we think of people um, who are unsaved, who we know, we really need to be praying for God to do a work to draw them to repentance and faith. Because um, we can't convince them of spiritual truth until they've had a spiritual awakening. Um, but we present it and hope that God's working to open eyes and open hearts, that they'll actually see, all of a sudden, they won't just see the truth about Christ, but they'll see the beauty in Christ. And they'll see the glory in the gospel. Um, yeah, that's verse 16. Uh, verse 17, now the Lord is spirit. We're uh, probably referring to, this is kind of hard to interpret. So is the spirit they're referring to the Holy Spirit or the spirit of Christ? Um, or is this just it telling us that the Lord Christ is a spirit? Um, it's hard to say, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are functionally unified. Christ ascended to send the spirit. So there is a sense in which we can say that everything the Holy Spirit does is an act of Christ, who's the one sending the Spirit to us. So, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, Christ's Spirit at work among us, there's freedom. And I think freedom here is particularly referring to freedom from this old covenant, shadowy, veiled ministry. Uh, But we could probably think of all freedom that we have in Christ, freedom from the uh, penalty of our sin, freedom from its enslaving power, Freedom from having to spend our life serving vain idols. Freedom from serving the devil and having a new father in Christ. Um, Our freedom is so holistic and full as believers. It's amazing. And then verse 18, which I think is, it's a favorite of some. Um, We all with unveiled faces, right? So he's taking that metaphor. We don't have, now the veil is over our eyes, over the scriptures, same thing. Um, That veil has been taken away in Christ. So now that this has happened, we are those who are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Lord is referring to Christ there. And are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, So the beautiful picture here is that now with open new eyes, we can truly see the glory and beauty of the gospel and Christ. And when I was actually studying this, I realized that I've always sort of read this a a little wrong. So I always kind of read that the looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord is kind of like, so am I looking at something that's reflecting God or am I looking at like God in myself? Like, am I beholding the reflection? But what I realized, I think it's actually um, the mirror is referring to how we look. And so if you think of how do I look at a mirror when I'm really wanting to use it, it's like, you know, you study it, get real close up on your nose or whatever. You want to be really exact with your makeup or check that there's something between your teeth. When you're looking in a mirror, you're looking carefully and closely because you want to see as clearly as possible. And even if you think of a day where mirrors were far less clear and accurate than they are now, you'd have to look extra closely. So I think it's saying... This is the type of looking we want to have when we look at Christ. We want to look close. We want to look carefully. We want to look at the details, look minutely at it uh, with that sort of careful looking, such as we look in a mirror. But the thing we're really looking to see is when we look carefully at the scriptures, when we look carefully um, or listen carefully even to the preaching, it's, 
I really want to see as much beauty and glory in Christ as I can, a glory that we've been enabled to see by the Spirit. And the neat thing here is that um, we learn that the process by which we become like Christ is really just the process of looking at Christ. Um, I think there was a, a phrase that's used for this is often like beholding leads to becoming. That it's as we behold Christ, we become like him. And uh, that's interesting because it seems like such a simple process. Like all I do is look and then I'm, I'm transformed. Um, which is not the way most things work as far as how we're transformed, but this is our communion with Christ and our worship of God. And as we spend time in his presence, looking into his word, um, meditating on these spiritual realities, it starts to really infuse us and it changes the way we think about things. It changes the way we analyze our own lives and our actions. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they refer to that veil, mm-hmm. when Moses is read... Is there a danger even now for us when we concentrate on the law rather than on grace, even in our own lives, that that puts a veil between us and Christ? Uh, I, I would say by way of analogy, yes. If we're, only fo- if we're focused more on the law than the gospel, we're going to be missing out seeing things. Um, but... I, I would say that I think this particular illustration of the veil is, I think, more referring to seeing Christ in, like, the types and ceremonies and temple. But I think, like, it's still true that, yeah, if we're only living a law-based life, we're going to miss out on a lot of the joy and beauty of um, the get-to, not the have-to. We're not rid of that veil completely yet. Yeah, and even, you know, I think that's also part of, like, teaching is, like, how do we further unveil the shadowy things in the Old Testament and try to see, even um, how Pastor Mike tried to help us see how does Daniel fit into the redemptive plan God has to lead about to Christ, you know? So I think uh, we want to unfold God's word to see more and more light in it. Um, oh, yeah, I, just, I wrote down this quote. I really liked uh, one of my study notes talking about this transformation. Uh, That word transformed there is, um, I think, the same word used in Christ's transfiguration, where his face was shining bright like Moses on the mount. So we want to have that transformation. Um, And what we're being transformed is the same image. So that is the image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory. So like from holiness to holiness or beauty to beauty, um, amazingness to amazingness. Uh, we want to look like Jesus. So it's like as we look at him, we become like him. And, and this, this quote I really liked is it said, um, this is really the process of sanctification. And the study note said, it's a progressive restoration to greater and greater possession of the image of God, which was corrupted at the fall of Adam. So we think of progressive sanctification, but we can think of that like we're being progressively restored to resemble that image of God in us that God had intended for us to bear in Adam. And if you think of the image of God as like a beautiful painting reflecting the creator's glory and beauty, in the fall that was like painted over and smudged and disgraced, and you maybe see bare glimmers and remnants of it, um, but in Christ now we're being progressively renewed and so that that glory and beauty that God intends for us to reflect of him can be seen again to the world. Uh, any other thoughts on this last half of chapter 3 before we get into chapter 4? Alrighty, chapter 4. 
therefore, since we have this ministry, again, he's talking about uh, this gospel new covenant ministry. And it's interesting, that's the same way he kind of started verse 12. Since then we have such a hope here, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we don't give up. So this is the true ministry God's given us, so we're going to persevere in teaching it. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things. Uh, If you remember the previous chapter, he talked about people peddling the word of God for profit. So these are probably some of these shameful and secretive people. Not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. So you remember, some people were accusing Paul, like questioning his motives. And he's saying, no, like, we're going to commend ourselves to your conscience to know that we have integrity. We're not shameful. We're not sneaky or deceitful. And we're doing this by just displaying to you the truth, the truth about us, the truth about God and the gospel. And I think just as an application of this, um, just the idea really struck me of this idea of people who distort the word of God. And of course, this is something false teachers do, but just thinking for ourselves how easily we distort the word of God. Um, And distortion is interesting because it's not totally overhauling or trading. It's just, it's like squishing it in the wrong ways, getting the wrong proportions. And I think um, this can even happen unintentionally for uh, people in, in our, you know, biblical conservative circles. This happens, I think, in each of our own lives. And something that I've been increasingly convinced of in the last couple of years is that we, we don't just have to get right what the Bible says, but we also have to get right what the Bible emphasizes and how much proportion certain topics are given compared to other ones. Because what happens is that the, some of the smaller things, the minutia, which can be important and matter, they get elevated and they're the things that separate, say, our denomination from other denominations. And we then elevate those to be cardinal doctrines in a sense and forget things like how much proportion does the New Testament give to loving one another or to being unified in Christ or to serving the poor and needy. Um, we, we almost like to create scripture into our image, that the things we think are most important, scripture also does. And just, I think a good reminder for us, as we look in God's word, just, just be aware of what comes up repeatedly, what ideas seem to get emphasized again and again, that it would then be our, our DNA, that, that the proportions we see in scripture are the proportion with which we emphasize and encourage things. Does that make sense? So, yeah, distorting the word of God, we can watch it even in ourselves. Verse 3. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So, same idea as we've seen before. In their case, the God of this age, which is referring probably to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So, now it's not just a veil, it's a total blindness. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this is almost looking at the idea, again, from the perspective of the unbeliever, whereas in verse 18, it was more from the believer. Uh, unbelievers, like we said, they don't see the glory and beauty in Christ. It's kind of um, the light of the gospel that is like a bright good news. They don't see the bright good news of the amazingness of Jesus Christ as the one who reveals God. That's what we could say this is saying in different words. They don't see God in Christ, that he truly is the image and display of God. Um, And verse 5 I really like here. It says, For we are not proclaiming ourselves 
but Jesus as Lord. And so I think when we look just to that previous verse and connect these, um, they don't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. It's the glory of Jesus as Lord, the exalted Christ, the Lord Christ. And um, he says, this is what we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. And um, so I want to do a bit of an aside on this because I think this was really capturing my thoughts this week. And I think it's really interesting. Um, there's critics of the Bible often will talk about, they'll say that Paul and Jesus had a different gospel. So they'll say Jesus taught the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And then Paul changed it up and he taught the gospel of Christ. And so he made it all about Christ and Christ wanted it to be all about the kingdom. Uh, but, and it's true that Paul does not talk about the kingdom of God near as much as Jesus does. But someone pointed out to me that implicitly every time Christ is called Lord, that's the same idea as calling him king. So this idea, Paul's like, yeah, the kingdom is here because Christ is the king. And the premier confession of the early church was Jesus is Lord. That was the distinguishing fact of a Christian was that they acknowledged Christ as the true king and Lord above Caesar. And this is what he says is his proclamation. His preaching is Jesus as Lord. And uh, I was telling this, I think, at the young adults um, on Sunday night. But we, I think, often in the Western Christian tradition, we truncate the gospel, I think, a little bit. Um, so what, what we have is we have a Western tradition of Christianity um, which was largely carried in the Roman Catholic Church. And there's an Eastern tradition, which was largely carried in the Greek Orthodox Church. They split up from each other about a thousand years ago in 1054. And their emphasis are divergent. So the Roman Catholics really emphasize the death of Christ and the cross of Christ and the sufferings of Christ. Whereas the Eastern Church really emphasizes the resurrection and ascension and reign of Christ. Um, and I think what happens is because we do come out of the Western tradition, we rightfully so have a really strong good emphasis on Christ's death and the, what the cross is an atonement. But I think we have missed out on the necessity of Christ's resurrection and ascension and enthronement as equally part of the gospel. And uh, I think it's a sad tale to us that I think for a lot of us, if someone asks us what the gospel is, uh, we would say Christ died for our sins so we could be forgiven. And a lot of people I meet would tell you the gospel and never mention the resurrection, never mention the reign of Christ. And so if we think about it in terms of, we teach that Christ has three offices, three roles he fulfills, those of prophet to speak God's word to us, priest to atone and intercede for us, and king to reign. We often only focus on Christ as priest when we proclaim Christ. And it's interesting, you think um, more liberal churches historically, they reduced Christ to just the prophet, that he's just a good moral teacher who proclaimed to us the right way to live, told us um, the will of God, which is true, but missing the priestly part, we're like, you have no gospel. But I think that we need to be thinking in all three of these categories that the good news is that, yes, Jesus came and proclaimed to us the will of God, how to live, what God wants for us as a prophet, he also accomplished the work of redemption and atonement in dying for us as a priest on the cross. But he's also reigning and the Lord and is righting all wrongs and is judging the nations to bring them into his will 
reigning and ruling over his church. And that's like an exciting, um, all-encompassing vision. So if Paul can say, our proclamation is Jesus as Lord, I think we need to try to just add these components a bit more to our idea of the gospel. That yes, Jesus died for our sins, but he also was raised for our justification. And he reigns to lead us in triumph and victory and in mission in the world. Does, does that make sense? Does that seem sketchy to you guys? Or are you guys following? Amen. Two amens. Okay, well, I guess we're all agreed. So. <laughs> but I, I do think this emphasis is really helpful for us um, to even like, because even if over-focus on the cross without the resurrection, that is kind of like you're saying a focus on law. It is a focus on our sin and forgiveness. But if we stop there, we forget about the mission and the empowering and the sending of the Holy Spirit that Christ has given us to participate in this kingdom mission of the renewal of all creation um, and the expansion of the kingdom of God as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, that's, that's that resurrection lordship component. Anyways, that's a hobby horse of mine, so thanks for indulging me. Uh, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So this God who created light out of darkness, original creation power, has used that creative power to create new hearts in us. Um, a regenerate heart coming from seeing and knowing God's glory in Jesus. We've kind of talked about that. It's popped up a few times here. But it's, this is the work of new creation. Just as powerful as God's creative power to create the world from nothing is the same power he uses to create new, living, alive hearts from the dead and stony hearts that we had before. So this is his work of a new creation, uh, a new power on earth through the Holy Spirit and the transformation of lives. Uh, coming by the fact that we recognize that in Jesus' face we see God's glory. To see God's glory in Jesus is the essence of what um, he's opened our eyes to see. And this treasure we have in jars of clay, verse 7, so that the extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Um, this, this treasure of the gospel is in us, weak vessels, us weak people, but we get to carry this incredible treasure in us, this treasure in the field that we've found and sold all to buy and here's how, here's how Paul sees himself as a jar of clay. Because, like we said, uh, the church was wondering if he was legit because he was having so much suffering. He's like, yes, we are afflicted in every way. We're perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Which is, tr these were literally true. Uh, but what is God doing in Paul within it? He's keeping him from being crushed. He's keeping him from despair. Reminding him that he's not abandoned. Reminding him... Um, or sustaining him from being destroyed. And this is the hope we can have in the midst of suffering, that um, God doesn't promise to keep us from ever being perplexed or persecuted or struck down, but um, the Spirit works to help, help, hopefully keep us from despair, to uh, remind us that we're not abandoned. God's presence as a good Father is always with us, uh, seeing God within our suffering. Uh, he says we always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body. For we who live, uh, this is a death and life contrast, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may be displayed in our flesh, so then death is at work in us life in you. Um, and so these two ideas of death and life, modeled after Christ, so Christ's death 
were buried with him in baptism. Christ's life were raised to him in newness of life. These are, um, in a sense, the two poles of the Christian life that we live our whole lives between. We're always living out of both Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. We were fellowshipping with Christ's death in all our suffering. As we see sin in us, as we see death in this world, suffering in our family, brokenness in our relationships. The whole Christian and age of the church is going to be an age where there's fellowshipping in Christ's death, marked by deathness in all of us. But it's also an age marked by life, marked by resurrection power, marked by the spirit. And we always are somewhere in those two poles, often both at the same time in different mixtures in our life. Sometimes we'll feel like we're fellowshipping really in death and suffering, sometimes experiencing joy and resurrection power. But uh, these are the two poles that really mark this age. And there's a, a truth in that with, even if it's not persecution for our faith, all suffering is a suffering um, with Christ in his death for the Christian. Because we hope in God in our trials just as Christ did and identify with him in that. And he says even in verse 12 that this death that's working in us is actually working in life in you. Our trials, our sacrifices are actually being used by God to bring you into greater spiritual life. Which is a beautiful thing, um, being able to sacrifice for others. And since we have this same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. That's from Psalm 116. We also believe and speak. For this is kind of what they're confessing their faith in and they speak. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. So he's like, in spite of all our afflictions, all our death, one day we're going to be raised to new life. No more death, no more suffering, no more pain. We'll be with Christ, fully participating only in his resurrection. No more death. And we trust you're going to be there too, the church with us. And that's, that gives us hope. That gives us perseverance in our sufferings. And he says, indeed, everything, verse 15, is for your benefit. He says, every suffering I'm ever all undergoing, this is all for your benefit, so that as grace extends to more, through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Um, and this is just the beautiful work of the Christian ministry and really all our service to one another is that we just want to see grace extending. And isn't that, that's what we want for grace fellowship, that as we fellowship with one another, as we speak of Christ and his beauty and the word and our life and our suffering and our joys, um, we want to see grace extending in this web of relationships. Uh, we want to see grace extended to the suffering, to the hurting, um, grace extended to the weak, the helpless, and really all of us are in so many ways. And the beauty of seeing grace extend is that it causes more thanksgiving to go to God. The more grace works among us, the more God gets praise and God gets glory, and we rejoice in that. Therefore, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Isn't that true? We feel that. Uh, for our momentary... Yeah, amen. For our momentary... And like, Paul is undergoing whippings that almost kill him. And yet, he says, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. Don't you love that line? An absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And I like the fact that 
our affliction is not without purpose. Mm-hmm. When you're in affliction, mm. you just so often feel, what's the sense of this? What good is this? Yeah. And to see, written in God's Word, mm. that it is producing something. Yeah. It's got a purpose. Amen. So it's good. Yeah, God uses all this death with Christ to and make it, us and like it, And it's sent with that purpose. It's, it mm. just doesn't come into our lives by chance. It comes with a purpose. Mm. Amen. Like yeah, that. God is so good. Yeah. Yeah, how he cares for us. And so he says, therefore, we don't focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And so I want to end with this thought. Um, he says, so our focus on everything is we want to focus on the unseen eternal realities instead of the seen temporal realities. And just as a last thing for us, um, I feel like I've often just thought of this as the idea of I need to focus on heaven. I need to focus on that unseen eternal reality. But I realized, actually just this morning, there's a lot more unseen eternal realities than heaven. God is eternal. Christ is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The kingdom of God is uh, invisible, yet it's going to be an eternal reality. The redemption that Christ has accomplished in history, we don't even see it, but it's going to be eternal. Um, uh, The word of God lasts forever. Um, The word of God in its essence. Um, And so just like when I think of it that way, I'm like, oh, this is a lot more useful to me than just thinking I should just only focus on heaven, which is good. That is an eternal reality. But every unseen spiritual reality we focus on helps us participate in this inward daily renewal. And and that's what we need. We need inward daily renewal, renewal into the image of Christ. And this is largely going to come by, like we talked about, beholding Christ, but really all focus on the unseen eternal spiritual realities. So we really do need to become people that are thinking more in terms of the kingdom of God the reign of Christ, our participation in spiritual new creation. Um, the more we can focus on the spiritual and eternal, the more we're going to cultivate that inward renewal. And I think one way to do this is just by focusing on praise. So although petition is good um, and right and really helpful, that's a temporal focus. But we need to make sure we're always including in our prayers praise and thanksgiving because praise lifts us to the heavenly realities And whether you're listening to music, putting it on, or in your prayers, let's be people who look to the spiritual and look to God in praise. Uh, Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed help us be people who this week can focus on the unseen spiritual realities, especially that we would look at our reigning Lord Jesus Christ and find in him strength to persevere in all our suffering and trial, that we would seek to see his beauty in the word of God, And that as we do this, you will transform us into the same image. Lord, grant us a holy discontent with ourselves, that we would desire to be nothing, that Christ would be all in all, that we would more and more reflect his love and compassion and humility to this world, that you would renew us daily in the inner man, free us from sin, forgive us, and help us in all our weakness. We do see, Lord, that we're jars of clay, but you've given us a treasure in Christ. And would we treasure him always? and share that treasure with others. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.